0: I'm Sarah Resnick,
1: and I'm LaShawn Moore, and we are the hosts of The Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello! I hope all is well. Welcome to episode 91 of The Weave Podcast. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Heidi of Early Futures. Heidi is an archivist and practitioner of earth pigments, That she extracts from landscapes mostly in the western United States. Her pigments can be used for an array of making mediums, such as in an art practice or for their healing medicinal properties. I am especially excited to have her on the podcast because she offers a unique perspective in the realm of nature making and spirituality. I'm incredibly excited to learn about the historical significance and science behind her work. Hey, Heidi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you start out by introducing yourself and telling us about your background and how you began your work as an earth pigment and arts
0: pigment archivist? Sure, yeah, I... Um, I'm a, an artist practicing in the Pacific Northwest, where I was born, and my journey to get to being an earth pigment archivist and ochre worker is a little bit uh, sideways, actually. I, Although I, my undergrad education was at art school in Baltimore, and my grad school work is in philosophy and religion, neither of those things are what got me to the ochres, per se. Um, um, my my background to getting here was actually from following dreams and visions I saw in meditation, and I was sort of, I guess for lack of a better word, maybe mandated to figure out what ochres are are for and why they matter. And I've just essentially followed these dreams and these visions until I realized what ochres were in the actual world. And I, yeah, that's basically, it was this mix of, of having enough of an education background in the arts and in philosophy to know how to trust my own intuition to follow something that came in through these other means. Um, and then, yeah, doing the work to follow up and see what, what the heck ochres were. <laughs> so that's how I've gotten here today was <laughs> a, long, a long sidewind journey. And can you explain for our listeners what ochres are? Yeah. So ochres are basically minerals that have iron and oxygen in them. So they're rocks, soil, clay, and other mineral constitutions that um, where the color is coming largely from the presence of iron in many different forms. So ochre, although the word tends to conjure the color yellow in people's minds, ochre as a material actually makes a huge rainbow of colors and a large diversity of minerals that can make those colors that all have iron in them. So that's basically how I think about ochres, and it's perhaps a slightly larger umbrella than some people who, like in the archeological community, who might think of ochres specifically as clay-based iron oxides. So I I tend to see see ochres as a little bit larger uh, set of minerals.
1: And how did you develop your skills in extracting and archiving earth pigments?
0: Yeah, that's uh an interesting question because ochres are humankind's oldest creative tool, right? They're the they're the oldest pigments we've ever used as a species. They helped us Give rise to our modern cognition, the way that we think, the way that we imagine, how we're capable of expressing ourselves. Ochres were, were sort of this mineral that taught us that we were able to make our very first marks on, on the ground and on each other and on ourselves and on the cave walls using ochre and some other minerals, but largely ochres. And so there's this, a part of my, um, way that I learned how to work with earth pigments was really doing a kind of primordial memory practice, like remembering how to just crush rocks from my ancestors that they've been doing forever. And then um, following that was really a lot of reading. So the, the process of working with mineral pigments is something that There isn't really a comprehensive book on the subject, but there are a number of disciplines that work with pigments from the sciences to soil science, to geology, to archaeology, to art conservation. And so it was a lot of reading across disciplines to understand how they each worked with processing pigments. And then the third sort of essential piece of my learning these skills was having a mentor. And I have a local mentor in the Pacific Northwest. She's this wonderful woman named Melanie Anchetta, and she's a bit of a rogue hermit who lives in the mountains, and she's been studying specifically the Northwest Coast um, pigments, so the Haida traditions, the Lummi traditions, Coast Salish traditions, and how they sourced and used pigments here where we live. And she's been doing that for 25 years, and I sought her out to study with her. So I go to her cabin, and I see her pigments, how she works with them. And I learn a lot from her now. And we, we both learn from each other and exchange information. So those are the, that's a really long way to answer your question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And can you place earth pigments in a historical context? For instance, the colors that you extract are beautiful, and in today's sort of modern world, we see a lot of representations of color, both naturally and synthetically. Can you kind of talk about the history of earth pigments and the
0: colors that you extract? Sure, yeah. The, the history of earth pigments, um, like I was saying, it goes back to really the origins of Homo sapiens we precisely because um, earth pigments are used multidisciplinarily they're used in our art practices and they were something we used historically for those purposes for drawing images and getting them outside of our inner lives and putting them externally, leaving a mark behind um, That was one of the main uses, but they are they're also physiological. Evolvers in such that we used earth pigments to create sunscreen. And that allowed for the, our migration out of s- parts of Central and Southern Africa. And then we also used them as internal medicine. So in Egypt, actually, the earliest paint recipe we have in hieroglyphics is linseed oil, which is flaxseed oil, hematite, which is a red ochre, and a few other little things like some honey and a little bit of onion. And that is almost exactly the same oil paint recipe we would use today, but they used it for an internal medicine to help um, take out toxins from the body. And in science today, you see that we are using the same iron oxides, those hematites, as nanoparticles To help us extract toxins from the body. So there's this history where humans and ochres and earth pigments have worked together um, in lots of different ways over time. So that's the history part. And what, what was the other part of your question?
1: Well, earlier in our previous conversation, you were saying something really beautiful and interesting about the color red and power, and I'm kind of wondering if you can kind of tap back into to that part of the conversation and the different reds. The example you gave about cochineal, and the example you gave about um, the red that you find by crushing rocks, and
0: sure, yes, so there's um, I. Right. You're, we were talking a little bit about how earth pigments have evolved into synthetic pigments now and how we've kind of lost track of some of our ability to discern color from its material source. So a lot of times the, a good example that I think of is the color red. We we might see like seven different kinds of red and not realize they're coming from really different material backgrounds. So you can get red from red ochre, which is this hematite, iron oxide. It's non-toxic. It's in fact medicinal. It has this deep ancestral tie to the planet and our origins and many other things, and including um, our blood, which I can come back to. But You can get red from red ochre, but you can also get red from chemicals. So from um, normal oil-based chemical process that we make a lot of our synthetic materials out of now. You can also get reds from other minerals that are toxic. So for example, example, cinnabar, which is a mercury-based mineral, makes red. You can also get red from lead and arsenic and some coppers, and a number of other materials that can have a different and even negative impact on the human body and mind when you're using them. And that's not even to mention the reds you can get from plants and animals and organic matter or botanicals, which in the dyeing and textile traditions is much more prevalent than the mineral-based reds. But To me, there's a huge difference between a red that you get, say, from the cochineal bug and a red that you get from ochre. So with the cochineal bug, you're talking about a red that's coming from a pregnant insect and the best reds from cochineal come from the most pregnant ones (laughs) and being killed right when they're the most pregnant. So you're dealing with this red that has a kind of sacrificial power involved in it, a feminine sacrifice that um, is important to notice and that you can also wield as part of the meaning inside of your practice when you know that about your material resources. As opposed to red that comes from iron oxide or ochres, what I work with, that red has a history of being associated with the blood with the core of the earth and in fact the iron oxide elemental nature of it is very related to the iron and the oxygen in our blood the iron in our blood is what delivers oxygen around our bodies so without those two things you don't move or breathe or live at all and it's also more deeply related to the nature and the the structure of the planet our our earth the core of the earth is made of iron just like the core of ochres and the atmosphere of the earth is made of oxygen just like the atmosphere of ochres so if you think about earth as this giant iron oxide with like a very heart or blood-centered core and humans as a kind of smaller version of that a microcosm of that where these Ochreous beings with blood and oxygen that are really important to us, and then if you start working with a red that's made from, let's just say, mud in your farm field that's made of the same thing, you're going to have a really different meaning, feeling, and connection to that color than, say, the cochineal one. Neither one is better than the other, I don't think. But I think if you are not aware of what the material meaning of your resources are, then you're missing a whole piece of how you might be able to influence your practice and or other people's experience of your artwork.
1: Wow, that's really beautiful. And it's really interesting to kind of hear you place pigments in this very geological, philosophical context it's it's really interesting to kind of hear you talk about how colors have meaning, right? And that within the process of processing, you know, something like cochineal, that nature kind of has to run its course in order to get a particular pigment and that that does do something to the end result. And that is something that could help or should be a part of the, the making process and the, the informative aspects of craft and, and um, presenting a, a product based off of these pigments. Can you kind of talk about how this, you know, earth, um, this, this earth philosophical context plays into early future specifically
0: and what that means? Sure. Yeah, so essentially you're curious about how earth pigments and sustainable futures perhaps are interwoven or related or how I think about that?
1: Yeah, like I'm thinking more so about the name, you know, early futures because future, you know, future is is something that like is to be announced or to be something that is in the future of existence. But early futures (laughs) kind of... Um, when you add early in front of the word "future,"s it kind of for me in my mind takes me to a space where I'm thinking about really the technology of our ancestors the technology of our um, indigenous peoples and the work that they've done and how they their technology was kind of based on natural processes and I'm just kind of interested I guess in how that plays into your practice, if that makes sense. Or maybe that's just me making sense Mm -hmm. of, of,
0: of your work. No, that's exactly right. And that's a beautiful way to bring in the early piece is really, you could say ancestral futures, or you could say um, futures as were once known by our ancestors that we have now forgotten Um, Essentially, for me, the early futures is very much about reorienting the future as uh, not being a singular kind of like a white Christian apocalyptic future and rethinking about it as being pluralistic and diverse and coming from places that are billions of years old, millions of years old, thousands of years old, and that have, that are also uh, going into futures that are made of millions of years and into timeframes we don't understand and that we are participating in a really a huge cosmic story that has many things happening at once. There is no determined singular future and there is no um especially no singular apocalyptic future which is um i think can be a great relief and our ancestors and the indigenous cultures that have been working with these mysteries for at least 300,000 years and then that's not including our ancestors if you go back before homo sapiens which i would consider us being really the ancestors of cells, the ancestors of bacteria um, that those are our really primal ancestors and before that you get minerals. So I think about early futures as being a way to think through and with all of these cultures that have come before us and are still living now. They're not they're not they're not gone the all of these cultures and their their knowledge and their wisdom are with us they're in us we're made of that so we don't get to escape that or imagine that's yeah um so uh, for me the early futures is really trying to honor this much wider deeper way of thinking with what our role is on the planet and where that's coming from
1: Yeah, I mean, and kind of to liken that philosophy to my practice, I think a lot about the history and what it means for me in this present day and age to be doing the work that I'm doing you know I live in uh, South Carolina in the deep south low country and I'm growing cotton and indigo and I'm working on land that is still within the family of two brothers they were former slaves and they either bought the land or the land was allotted to them but in thinking about you know space and and geography and time and soil right the soil that I'm Mm -hmm. that I'm growing in this natural research could have very well been the same soil that my ancestors were enslaved on. Um, The seeds that I'm using are all of an heirloom variety that could have come from, that did come from the same seeds that were once used during slavery era. And so, you know, I, I definitely feel what you're saying when you're talking about um, our ancestors are still alive. And I think that being more in touch with the earth has, has definitely allowed me to really see and understand what that means, you know, what an
0: ancestor is. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that piece of your work and for doing that work. I I agree. I think that we can sometimes get really caught up that our ancestors are specific humans, and if we cannot talk to those humans anymore, then we can't remember how to, or we don't know how to, or there's not a way to access that knowledge. But these seeds and these soils and these plants and the land itself are wisdom beings that remember and that carry and that hold our ancestral wisdom that can be continued to be learned from. And for me, many times land that has carried um, devastating events on it, so um, mass murders, for example, but also hold really sacred pigments at the same time. Um, And there's this way of being like this land can teach about both of those things without losing one or the other. It's trying to say, like, there's this long-term plan here. Not plan, but there's, like, this long-term process we're all involved in that has to honor the most immediate events that have happened on this land, but also land in this larger way of being a teacher that can say, also, think about the things that have happened here 100,000 years ago and how you're a part of that, you know. So there's these so many layers we can remember when we're doing work like what you're doing right and maintaining relationship with the living entities of all kinds
1: yeah absolutely absolutely and can you kind of talk about where you're located now you're in washington state correct yeah
0: i live in far northern washington Close to the Canadian border, in the foothills of the Cascade Mount Baker Mountain Range, and Mount Baker is a volcano. And I live at the base of a little smaller mountain that's um, an used to be an Indigenous Nooksack territory that has iron pigments on it. It's one of the few mountains in Washington that. Is known for its iron-based pigments. So, I work with that land and that place in my home every day. Um, but I also work around this region generally, and I'm born of this region. My I, I was born about two hours south of where I live now. So it's it's very much my land and my place that I come from, or it's what I consider my homeland.
1: And can you talk about your surrounding community? Um, are there other people who are doing archaeological
0: or ochre work as well? Yeah, there are other people doing ochre research. Many of them are archaeologists, actually. Um, there, a number of them are my friends, but they they tend to work with what is called archaeological ochre, which is specifically ochres that come from archaeological sites. So they're found there. And it's only in the last five or 10 years that people have really been trying to say, well, where do those ochres come from? And trying to understand the source deposits where people were getting their ochres and why they were choosing specific places. Um, And so a lot of these researchers are trying to now start making the connection between like what we were just talking about, why certain lands or why these land beings, why would they go and get ochre from this one particular place versus this other place? And what what were those, what what about these places made people want to keep going back to them for their materials? Was it the quality of the pigment or was, it, was there some kind of power endowed in that place or sort of sacred power? Or was there some kind of cultural memory happening there where... Um, It was a place where you could, where stories were told that would help us remember how to practice our relationship with our ancestors. We don't, you know, so there's people out there doing this kind of research, but um, they tend to be within their own disciplines. So one of the things I'm trying to help them navigate and also my friends who are artists who are wanting to make their own pigments for their practices um, is to bring a lot of these dialogues more together or in connection to each other so that we can have, um, yeah, just more communication about what's, what's going on here on the planet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And one thing that, that I'm also really curious about is how you're able to sort of sustain this practice, both, environmentally, socially, financially. Um, many people who come on the podcast are entrepreneurs, business owners. Um, I know that you also sell your pigments as well. And I also saw that you have a, I guess you could call it a bottering system for or a trade system that you also use for your pigments, which I think is awesome. But can you kind of talk about what it's been like to do the work that you're doing and how you've sort of been able to continue the work?
0: Yeah, that's... Yeah, sustainability on so many levels, that's a hard <laughs> question to answer, but honestly, it's tricky because for me, you know, my understanding of what sustainability is, is maybe a little bit different than, or my priorities, I guess, of what sustainability's, sustainability means is a little bit different, I think, than some people, and to me, I have a sustainable practice when my inner guides, my inner life and my relationship to land is able to be cultivated and heard and translated into the outer or the material worlds and vice versa. So to me, if I'm able to keep that channel open and healthy and active and learn from it, then I'm happy and I feel successful and I feel like I'm doing my part. Um, which doesn't always mean that I have sustainable financial income or a sustainable, like, business model even. I'm really more of a, I don't know, maybe akin to ancient iconographers who sort of live in this remote way, but they're trying to remain in humble contact with spirit through their materials. Like, they they used the charcoal from their hearths to make black their black pigment and like what you're doing they use the soil in their own backyards for their potentially for their pigments to paint the the ground that they would then paint angels on and so to me there's this um I I want my imagination to be sustainable more than maybe even my physical being (laughs) and I think there's so there's there's that piece for me is important but on a more practical level um, my my practice is always based on I want whoever is able to receive this work to be able to receive it and whoever is not willing to receive this work go away basically and um, that has worked out really well because then I can people who are able to pay for the work that I do and help support the archive practice they do people who cannot pay for it but have something to trade or offer, or even just are marginalized or an indigenous culture that can no longer access their materials, I will, I give them the materials or I will trade easily for free, or I will offer whatever I can offer. Like, um, and that, that to me has managed to balance itself out in terms of material and financial resources, but it's, you know, living in a humble, minimal way overall.
1: Amazing. Beautiful. Do you have any new projects or future prospects that you'd like to share
0: with our listeners? Hmm, that's a good question. I'm there's a number of subtle projects. So you know my overall project is this ochre archive where people worldwide forage these ochres from their landscapes or Scientists are gathering them on their research sites, and they send a piece of them to me um, to bring all together. So, I have all of the, you can imagine, I have this studio full of rocks and soil and clay from all over the world, from different sites, and some of them have been gathered with permission by certain elders and sent just to be amongst these other ochres. And so, a big part of my ongoing and future projects are letting these ochres be together and sort of learning how to um, continue to learn from them and their wisdom and and their powers their creative powers and trying to understand how to communicate those to other people and that's just a you know it's a very general project but it's it's a deep one and it requires a lot of my resources and my energy to stay Capable of trying to even be in relationship with stones. I mean, humans—we're not very good at being in relationship to each other, let alone non-human entities. (laughs) So it's kind of an exhausting (laughs) practice. But um, yeah, my project is to kind of sustain this archive and keep learning where to go with that. And it's very open-ended, mysterious process. And so yeah, I'm—I'm in the middle of working with a number of people and cultural resources to try to protect and understand their ochres and bring them together at my house, <laughs> in my studio. <laughs> awesome. And one, one question
1: that I did want to <laughs> ask is, what are the ways that you would describe that people listening to the podcast who would want to support your work, what are the ways that they could purchase your your pigments and utilize them Sure. Yeah,
0: people. I I occasionally offer limited editions of pigments. They're they're pigments that I feel called or that have been asked to be released, in lack of better terms. So I will I will make these very small editions and put them out there, and people can purchase them as they are. And those run out when they run out. I mean, essentially, I will make a very small amount of them because that's all I feel is appropriate. But the other way that people, most people get pigments from me is by having a conversation with me. And then we decide um, together what pigments might want to come work with their practice. Or a lot of times people um, mm, will come to me and say, I feel a really strong connection to this place. I want to, do you have any pigments that are from this place? Or they might have an ancestral memory, like we were discussing also, where they're saying, I, I want to feel reconnected to my ancestors across the continent in this landscape that, um, I have the privilege to know that they were from. And I want to, I wonder how I can reconnect to that. So I will try to make pigments or source pigments that come from these, um, ancestral lineage grounds for people. And that's just emailing me, getting in touch with me and we can have a conversation. And, um, those are on my, in my shop online, you can read a little bit more about it under the personal pigments option. That's essentially tells a tiny bit of how I, how I work with those.
1: Awesome. And where can people go on social media and the internet
0: to follow and support your work? Sure, I have. Um, I use Instagram primarily as my mode of communicating, and that is Heidi Lynn. Heidi Lynn, um, or you, know, you can always get in touch with me through email, and I welcome any pictures of soil, stone, places. I get many many photos during the week through dm on instagram or through my email and i try to respond to all of them and um, i can help people if they're curious about if something on their land or in their practice could be used as pigment and you're not sure i'm happy to take a look um i just am sometimes geologically slow i like to say in my responses because (laughs) i i have a lot um (laughs) of different worlds happening so but I will get I will respond to you if you want to try to learn more I'm really trying to be a resource for people yeah well it's been really great
1: talking with you and I have one question that I have to ask before you go and we ask everyone that (laughs) joins a podcast and that is Do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts or people who are going to listen to this podcast
0: and feel connected to your work? Hmm. Well, first of all, I'll just say that I'm usually very inspired by textile based artisans because they naturally have a more interconnected way of thinking about their practice where their uh, wool is coming from, for example, or their their cotton, um, and I just admire that. I think my only advice that has saved my life and my art practice is what I've I think mentioned a few times is just staying as true to my imaginal world as possible and allowing that to be as real as any other world. Like there is no. Nobody has a stake on what reality is. It's it's up to us to determine how we want to think about what's real or not and where that can manifest in our work. And I just say I think it's important to preserve and protect the imagination as much as any other resource. So that's my advice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> awesome, amazing. Thank you so
0: much. Thank you so much. I, I wish we had more time to learn. I'd love to learn more about your practice and, and hear your stories and ask you all the same questions in return <laughs> in a different way. But
1: <laughs> That's a wrap. If you're interested in seeing more of Heidi's work and to support her practice, you can find links in the show notes at com slash episode dash 91. Next week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Jessica Sanchez of Rusted Earth Farm. Jessica is a farmer of a variety of sheep breeds that she harvests and process into wool yarn that she uses to create her one-of-a-kind weavings. So stay tuned for next week's fascinating episode. And until next time, happy weaving.